Have you ever been on a ghost walk? Uh, I've walked where I assume there are ghosts. If we go from the premise that all wind is ghosts. Do you, is that something you believe? Uh, believe. It's something I know. <laughs> okay. You've normally said so like well-rounded and thoughtful about things. <laughs> now you're coming out with this. You don't doors. know that wind's ghosts. I know it's not a valid belief because there is no corner of the ghost community that buys into that. Yes, because they're all like, they're all nerds that are trying to get into like all this mysticism. But I'm a materialist. And I tell you what, I go outside and I can feel okay, the Okay, so you're coming, you've invented a fringe ghost-believing skeptic corner like a sect is, is this a new has no one has no one done wind the wind is ghosts it's a kind of a bit of a purple prose thing you can get of whispering on the wind and oh i could hear their voice on the wind i oh, know i can't no, just feel it it's ghosts moving from point a to b they move in packs they're all going the same direction like right like flops. sparrows you gain like a homing instinct similar to a sparrow uh-huh. once you're dead provided yeah, yeah only yeah. if you have unfinished business in the material realm <laughs> Think of the the wind is like a poltergeist, isn't it? The wind is like a poltergeist. Expand. So a poltergeist is a spirit trapped in our realm with unfinished business that is able to physically move things through te- sort of uh, telekinesis and such. Mm. Um, and what does the wind do? Can't see it, but you can see the stuff it moves. Yeah, it spends most of its time moving around like discarded paper. Ouija board. That's not wind. That's not wind. People don't do a Ouija, bo- Ouija board outside. Yeah, because the ghost will just say things clearly rather than in a very yeah, controlled, if you put slow all the letters, manner. Don't start doing this like glass thing. Just get a load of letters and throw them into the wind and then the wind will move them into what it wants to yeah. say if it wants to communicate with you. But just like it'd be, because all the different ghosts are trying to say different things, you might think, you know, oh, it's just put all the letters in a random order. That just says, and you might think, well, that suggests that there's no ghosts. Actually, you've got to remember it's multiple ghosts all competing to say something. Yeah. So that's where the challenge is. You'll only get a clear message when there's ghost consensus. And ghosts are people too. And, you know, they have their own hopes, dreams, likes, fears. They're going to disagree. You'd imagine that every sufficiently divisive figure would then be caught in a tornado as two fronts of air are moving against each other with sufficient velocity. No, sadly, it just they just reach a kind of pathetic right, kind of stagnancy, of stasis, thick air, heavily mm-hmm. charged, unmoving. Yeah, yeah, you heard it here first. It's ghost physics. The real explanation. Uh, a lot of people. Here's question two: How do magnets work? The answer: Ghosts. Yeah, there we go. That was easy. Yeah. Once you got the cheat sheet, these questions really get easy. <laughs> Why do the Conservative Party never go below thirty-five percent in the polls? Ghosts. Nailed it. Have you ever been on a ghost walk? No. Should it have you? No, no I've come I... close. I've come close. I'm a, I'm a big... I have a lot of fondness for ghost walks and people who genuinely believe in ghosts. I was in a convo with someone who was giving me a hard sell for a ghost mm. walk, but I didn't realise. I genuinely thought they were an electrician because they were talking about... <laughs> they were like pointing at this pub and it's like, this is the oldest pub in the city. And the other yeah. day I was in there and the lights started flickering. Yeah, it's because it's really and old. I'm, You've just like, given me two pieces of information I needed in that original statement. Yeah, and I'm like, what, are you giving me, like, consumer advice to avoid them because the lighting <laughs> isn't good? And he's like, no, it's flickering in, like, a really weird way. It's like, oh, yeah. right, there's an unusual electrical problem. And I think you had to, like, just, like, you know when people, like, talk in a kind of an affected mm. way and then they drop it to make their point mm. clear? You had to be like, no, I mean ghosts. No, I mean, I mean, I think there's ghosts in there. And I'm like, oh, right. And then I looked at him again and he was wearing, like, a waistcoat and, like, like a Homburg uh, yeah, wide-rimmed yeah, yeah. hat. And I'm like... I should have clocked this. I should have yeah, clocked it looks this like a doors. Bloodborne character. Yeah, but like, and definitely an NPC, not not a threat. <laughs> <laughs> not something that you think would do damage, just a kind of yeah. tutorial hostile yeah. mob. He hasn't got a pitchfork. There's this ghost walk guy in York yeah. who believes he invented the, the theatrical ghost walk. 
you know, like you're doing a street performance mm, mm. rather than just a litany of facts about when there was a ghost or when yeah. there was a death. You you dramatize it. And oh, wow. there's there's a guy in York who believes this is he invented it and he was the first one. But because Someone he lives in to. Yorks, which is like the ghost walk capital of Europe, yeah. there's so many copycats and he despises them all, hates them, and one part of his advertising pitch, <laughs> which he says both in his video adverts but also just verbally while while doing his street pitch is I invented all this this whole medium. Everyone else is just copying me. <laughs> wow. This is like yeah. when um Stuart Lee got really angry about open spots walking into the crowd. Or um Ricky Gervais tried to copyright his stage persona. What is his stage persona? Just fallible creep. I guess it's I mean it brings up the problem with copywriting anything because there are so many fringe cases. Like what what would count as a theatrical ghost walk as opposed to any other kind of ghost walk? Yeah, uh, and given York became flooded with ghost walks in the end, I think he even moved on to novelty comedy walks. But he'd take you right. mainly to haunted places. <laughs> <laughs> but he'd tell you jokes as well while he tells yeah. you about when someone was like beheaded in oh, the seventeenth no. century. He was on um, Come Dine with Me. Did he win? He didn't win because he tried to do a spooky meal, which didn't go ah. well with anyone. In order to make it sufficiently spooky. He held it in a disused, unheated furniture factory. No, furniture warehouse with all these old chairs. But there's no heating and there's also no cooking equipment. So yeah. he had he just microwaved soup for everyone. But he did give loads of people scares. <laughs> the fear of food poisoning. I love these guys that like become... A- like they have this thing and then they're the like this guy's the spooky guy mm. you know like a sitcom character like they behave like a sitcom character and they have like a thing and they're like right so i do for my job i do ghost walks and i'm gonna get and then even when i'm on come damage you know what i'm gonna do i do a spooky meal yeah and like you know before when he cooks a jacket potato he makes it like a halloween lantern thing i think that's what i love about him forget the fact that he's like spooky alan partridge which on its own is an amazing <laughs> like elevator pitch yeah, for yeah, a, a guy yeah yeah <laughs> but, yeah yeah I love people who've decided I've got this one thing and mm-hmm. I will do that thing in public. And yeah. that is so my thing that I now also have yeah. to do it in private. Yeah, all in. <laughs> I got my one thing. Yeah, I love guys <laughs> like that. Very that clear my, marketing. That's my best type of a guy, being a one-sentence guy, where <laughs> you can go, who's that guy? And you can, you can, t- you can tell someone a sentence and they'd never yeah. need spooky to know that's Partridge. It. Yeah, Spooky Alan Partridge. That's not even Nothing one sentence. Nothing deviates from that. Yeah, that's a sentence fragment. <laughs> <laughs> that's when yeah, you know you've line. reached yeah that's like Valhalla in it sentence fragment guy <laughs> <laughs> you just need the word guy and then two adjectives and you will never need to know more about me in your life <laughs> <laughs> Distribution party. 
Hello, and welcome to Mandatory Redistribution Party. My name is Sean Morley. And hi, friends. I'm Jack Evans. This week's episode is about types of cringe guy. Come with us back into the age of cringe as we excavate the deeds of some of its most heinous practitioners. Can the politics of cringe be harnessed for good, or should these forbidden fruits forever be cast into the abyss? Of course, one thing that is especially cringe is asking people to support your work. With that in mind, please support the podcast by sharing episodes on social media or leaving us a good review to help others find us, or even checking us a few quids at patreon.com slash mandatory redistribution party. We're going to be taking a mini hiatus around Christmas before returning in January. To end the year, we'll be doing a Q&A with listeners, so if you've got a burning question or even a tepid query, we've got a public post on Patreon where anyone could submit a cue for us to A. And now, the content. What is the most cringe political organisation someone can be involved in? So I think they need to be ineffective, but ineffective at doing something no one cares about anyway. <laughs> right? That's like you need yeah. that double whammy to hit uh-huh. this. Yeah, so like the Taxpayers Alliance is cringe, but they're sort yeah, but of they're, effective at their evil. Yeah, in terms of what I think about what they're doing, mm. bad. Mm. Are they doing it well? Yeah, they're doing they're doing a great yeah, job yeah, of being bastards. It. Yeah, yeah. So so they're only halfway there. Like also like the RS RSPB. They're the biggest pressure group, right, in the I UK. Think so, they're yeah, like yeah. and that's bird conservation. I don't think that's actually that bad. I think bird conservation's all right. Yeah. But then donkey sanctuary people, I don't know if there's like a pressure group for that, but I know that like there is this there's this this kind of home counties boomer. Mm. that all their charity money will go to, like, a donkey. <laughs> Are you talking about Keir Starmer? Keir Starmer's donkey sanctuary. He owns property or something? There's a... No, go on, tell me. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to get it. Yeah, so I think Keir Starmer has a donkey sanctuary. It's like a half million pound donkey sanctuary, which can't... I think that's just land that's worth half a million pound in Surrey, which is yeah. probably, like, one metre by one metre with, like, a donkey vertically in it, how a donkey should not be. You know, like its back legs are on the floor. Yeah, you squeeze a donkey into like a cubicle. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much yeah. land costs, but I feel like half a million quid's worth of land in Surrey. That's about <laughs> probably, right, yeah. Yeah, it's probably not even that much. Uh, it's going to be a donkey squeezed into the volume of like a toilet holder cylinder. I think he just inherited it from his parents or something, but he had he had a donkey sanctuary. Had? Yeah, I think he sold it. I don't know if he still got it. I think the Daily Mail tried to, in the, in the early, uh, early, like, let's try and get some dirt on the new leader of the Labour Party, they were like, Oh, he's got some fucking donkeys. <laughs> but Save their the leadership for love donkeys. It's the only charity they'll donate to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's probably, that gave him his uh, personal rating That's boost. That's why he's in. The, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Converted loads of mail rooms from a donkey guy. So yeah. am I, sign him up. I don't know if there's a Royal Society for the Protection of Donkeys. I saw someone like snipe a, a bird on social media the other day and it really made me, made me depressed, so... I can see why people support the RSPB. You don't mean like hit with a rejoinder. You mean like shot out of the uh-huh, sky. Yeah, shot out of the sky. And the per- person vigilant, just they, it, you see, you hear the, like the gun and you see the bird fall and then you see someone go, hear whoever's holding the phone go like, who did that? What, like a kind of disappointed nanny? Um, I think they may have been even more outraged. I think I didn't do the performance much justice. <laughs> they were very upset. Completely you justifiably. Really yeah. Who did that? <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't want to make the levels go crazy. Yeah, that's what you say about a spill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, God, who's done that? Yeah. You've just shot an endangered bird. <laughs> Naughty. <laughs> right on my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> You've just ended a life. Cat will have that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cringe. 
Change political. I guess Change UK when they were around. That was pretty good. That was really fun. The Nando's 12. Yeah. Who now all work for really dodgy uh, private companies lobbying the yeah, government well, to privatise We always had, because like Angela Smith's only, like her constituency is ah. like walking distance from me and she's yeah. like, I don't know how well she hid that she would always go to like the private meals of like private water firms <laughs> to actively lobby against the regulation of the water we drink. <laughs> Like I went on a big march in Sheffield mm. and she spoke at it and it was amazing because she just got the organisers had to cut her off to get the mic back to ask, please stop booing her because we can't hear anything she's saying. <laughs> <laughs> that nice. Was really good. Yeah. I love when people are coming out for a good cause, but then the wrong person gets to the front and everyone boos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Million Mask March, I think, is pretty cringe and incredibly confusing this year. Because they were coming out against masks. <laughs> the Million Mask Anti-Mask March was a really hard sell. <laughs> a million maskless march, yeah, it's just really confusing yeah. branding. Yeah, got to wear the right kind of mask. No, not the one that doesn't stop people dying. <laughs> people would be pro-COVID mask if you made it the V for Vendetta mask. Yeah, if do you know what? <laughs> Almost everyone on Facebook is spouting anti-mask stuff. If you could just get a Guy Fawkes moustache on it, they'd be wearing them over their mouth, over their eyes, over every ear. <laughs> There's a poppy for each eye, where the black centre of the poppy is your uh, an eye hole. Same for your nostrils, mm. same for your mouth. And anything that's it's, not poppy is Union Jack. I think a V for Vendetta poppy mask would sell so hard. <laughs> You would never get it off people's heads again. Hearing it first, here first. This is the first Mando's merch. <laughs> Shall we make one? <laughs> <laughs> Available for £100. Have it for free, but the upkeep costs. It's yeah, like yeah. when you get... Do you know, like, when you have, like, a specialist item and it needs to be repaired by, like, one guy and he's incredibly old? <laughs> it's a subscription mask. Yeah, it ha- and it has an incredible fault built straight into it. <laughs> but only I know how to switch the button that says work. Yeah, yeah. It will, if you miss a month's payment, it will explode on your face. The poppies will turn into upside-down cruciforms. Yeah. The poppies are actually living flowers that release terrifying spores. Yeah, just pure opium. (laughs) This is sounding good. Maybe that'd be nice. Yeah, I was going to say, you could actually, you could buy one of these as an investment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're really angry about masks, but now you don't really care about anything. <laughs> yeah, I'm not bothered about the investment. <laughs> I don't need to go outside. So you got Change UK. You got any other contenders? Cringe political organisations. Magician Circle? <laughs> or they're more of a... Political! <laughs> well, they, what are they are lobby like for? A, well, they're like a union, aren't they? Sort of, they're like an yeah. internal... They're like a... They're like a union that mostly works against the freedoms of their workers. <laughs> Right. Yeah, no, but the freedoms you, like, they're, they're workers that like um a magician who like steals tricks or reveals the secrets of tricks is the magician equivalent of a scab. Yeah, so they are. I think they are a political organization, magician circle. <laughs> yeah, do you know what? Credits where credit's due. <laughs> yeah, those magicians worked hard on those tricks. But it's like if you worked at like Tesco's mm. and like all your union did was like don't tell them what's in the warehouse. <laughs> don't tell them what's around back. <laughs> don't describe the staff room to anyone. <laughs> a Tesco staffed entirely by members of the magician circle. I don't want it. I don't want it. I'd shut it down. I'd campaign to shut it down. I'd hate that. Or Do you know what I'd hate? Like, I never thought about this, but we know how shops are a bit cringe. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. Do you know when you're in a shop, you're like, this is a bit cringe. Yeah. Imagine if shops tried to Can you make themselves that, more please? appealing by... <laughs> I'd really hope that wasn't coming. So... <laughs> 
you know sterilized spaces that aren't allowed to have anything interesting in them and they're just yeah. like corporately managed yeah, yeah and you accept it in like a doctor's because mm-hmm. you're like it's it's not cringe for a doctor's mm-hmm. to be like that i think it's mm-hmm. supposed to be like that we're just here to do medicine please don't yeah. f around because sh- a shop just used to be like a, a building that someone's put loads of products in and then you yeah, can buy yeah. it off some person that is there <laughs> but they've turned into this <laughs> hyper sterile space because they're now all brands and they have to be managed and they're all wipe clean floors and they're all mm-hmm. white and they're all strip lighting and there's nothing there except products and prices and your eye can't even fall upon any other surface because it is intolerably bland mm-hmm. and i think that's all a bit cringe being in a shop have you ever bumped into someone in a shop and you've tried to talk on the sh- in the shop because you've got because you, nice, you've got to you, you've met a friend because because yeah. being in a shop is cringe yeah. and having a convo in a shop makes the convo cringe. Yeah, I met my cousin in a shop uh, last year, cringe, Awful. and we both looked. Ter- strip lights make everyone look ghastly. You know, on Ren and Stimpy, another shows <laughs> of that era where you'd see them all drawn as these yeah. flat images, right? It, yeah. It's a flat style of art but then it would do this joke where it comes in and you can see all the warts and all the pores of their skin and it's rendered in this hyper real horrific uh artistic really bloodshot eyes and like yeah 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 then it's not just realistic it is like this person has leprosy this is horrific hyper grotesque yeah and that is what the shop lighting does to everyone it's what tesco's and sainsbury's and morrison's all these shop lighting renders everyone into these, you can see someone dying in real time, yeah. and yet you're supposed to just shoot the shit by the bread aisle. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the lighting of a lift, but the lift is 200 foot by 150 foot. The lighting of a, an autopsy room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, but it's. So I it, think, but you're not dead. You're still alive, which is sort cringe. of. Yeah. yeah, I am not dead, and I am not alive. I am cringe. That's. <laughs> I am in the. <laughs> I'm not dead. I am not alive. I am cringe. Yeah, it's what the French call the little death. It's cringe. <laughs> le petit cringe. Yeah, le, le cringe. <laughs> yeah, being in a shop is cringe. And so imagine a world where one of these shops decides to make being in the shop more entertaining in any way. I was in an Asda mm. once. Someone must have got the music like the radio they pump in and they played the whole of the album version of Through the Fire and Flames by Dragon Force. <gasps> and it was, it's the only interesting experience I've had in a big shop. And that was in a big Asda. You're piercing capitalist realism if you do stuff like that. I, I really felt that pierced capitalist realism. I had a friend who I think put like Cannibal Corpse on as the waiting music for yeah. HMV once. And I think all that pierces capitalist realism. <laughs> <laughs> That's praxis. Get metal on. In a, in a retail environment. <laughs> That's what you want, yeah. People can't handle it. It's a shop that's suddenly less cringe. Actually, no, what am I talking about? Listening to Dragon Force by the Delhi Isle of a big Asda maybe is actually the most cringe experience I've had, but in the moment, yeah. it felt liberating. <laughs> it can be both. Because I'm talking as though I think through the fire and flames is some sort of cultural epiphany that is anti-capitalist. But I want to clarify, <laughs> I don't think that Dragon Force work against the power of capital in any Yeah, I, I, I just thought it would be a very unusual thing to happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so but I, I posit to you that the most cringe political organisation someone can be involved in is Fathers for Justice. <sighs> right. Heavy hitters. Okay. Yeah. You know, so they, Fathers they, for Justice are... 
they're like a campaign group that starts off about like child custody reform, but then also expands to just be this like general purpose dad's rights wing of the men's rights movement that is just yeah. constantly angry online. They dress up as superheroes, which I don't really understand. That's all I know about. That's I mean, I like the famous thing, them. the superhero thing. Yeah, the super, and they're like like almost a couple of decades old. They've oh, they're a while they're, now, they're right? They like originate in the early noughties and they've done loads, yeah. they did loads of stuff. The superhero one's the famous one, which I don't do. You, so I don't know, but I assume the superhero thing is because superheroes, like all their parents are dead. Like Spider-Man's parents are dead. Batman's parents mm. are dead. Is it something to do with I, that? Well, when I think of their stunts, I think of them in the, in, in the same breath as David Blaine living in a cube. Yeah. And it's like, what did he want? What was he after? <laughs> <laughs> and we've come right away back to the magicians. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think you're working backwards from the costumes, whereas I'm going to walk forwards from yeah. what I think is the average imagination of an estranged dad. They need media recognition for this okay. course that is being overlooked. So one of them comes up with climbing on public architecture. Yeah. Someone else in the meeting goes, well, once we're up the architecture, are we not just as ignorable as on street level? And someone says, well, is there anything we could have? What, what, what could add what, without destroying this idea? I think it's a good idea, Ian. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for giving it forward. Is there anything we can add to the climbing up a plinth or a tree or onto a ledge? And people say, oh, we could dress up you could dress up and you have the imagination of an estranged dad who presumably buys flowers at the petrol station yeah full You're divorce gonna... like you've got a north <laughs> yeah. face gilet and uh, stonewashed jeans boot cut yeah exactly so you're only going to be able to just buy you just go to the commercial high street costume shop and you just buy what's there you buy the costumes available in londis yeah what next to the flapjacks and the wagon wheels <laughs> is, is yeah. banana man <laughs> <laughs> That'd be good. Flapjack in a Banana Man costume. That's a, that's a good trip to the shops. <laughs> you'd enjoy a Flapjack more if you were dressed as Banana Man. You'd think you'd want a banana though, wouldn't you? Mm. Eating a Flapjack as Banana Man. You'd just go around, yeah, but then you get the thrill of wrecking people's heads. Why is Banana Man eating a Flapjack? Is Banana Man the only superhero that actually is a child but then becomes a full-grown adult? Uh, is that Shazam? common? Oh, maybe that's quite common then. Yeah. Imagine being rescued from like peril. From absolute peril. And uh -huh. then this person saves you. And then you're probably going to have this intensely complicated mm, emotional mm, relationship mm, with this person. Mm. And that person turns into a nine year old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because if someone saved my life, I would feel I would feel a lot of intense emotions mm. towards them. Maybe love. Maybe I'd fall in love instantly with anyone the rest of my life. I don't know. I've never been in enough peril. Do you think you'd fall in love just immediately? Uh no. No, you don't think what, so. Like romantic love. Well, maybe not romantic love, but like some severe agape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'd get, I'd get like, to gape. Uh, yeah, I would have uncontrollable agape. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd be like, oh, fuck off. I've got agape with a bloody nine year old rando. <laughs> well, maybe that's what they say. They're like, you know what? People love, what do people love? They love superheroes. So, but instead of going, oh, well, why do people love superheroes? Because they are a power fantasy for the um, consumer of that stuff. And because superheroes are hero heroes and save people from stuff. They just love the superheroes. So we don't have to do anything heroic. If I'm Batman, my kid's going to love me. He'll be straight on the phone. He'll kick off at his mum. Right, of course. I know. What do kids like more than their dad? Batman. Yeah, right. So what if Batman had let himself go and climbed up on a ledge? 
and yeah, was being of, covered of covered only on 24 hours news <laughs> like just with yeah. a disinterested on the scene reporter this guy's here we don't know why and i remember the early doors seeing these news reports and there was a sense of we don't know why these guys are here wasn't there it took him a while to realize what fathers for justice was and disseminate that because for a long time there was just an understanding that like Spider-Man was high up on a bridge, but we don't know why. And we know it's not to promote a film because this Spider-Man looks really out of shape. And we don't think we don't think Warner Brothers would send a guy who's definitely in peril. Like the weird thing is, is because you kind of think of this as this joke thing, but they are like embedded in your public consciousness, like the Fathers for Justice superhero guys. Not in a hmm. not in a good way. Like they're not they don't have a positive image, other than I guess among like kind of men's rights activists or whatever. But like they are lodged there. Meetings with proper high profile politicians, like in 2003, they're meeting with like William Hague and Theresa May. And then, and that was before the, uh, the big superheroes campaign, which was 2004, which was the same year. So 2004 was the, the superheroes thing where they did it on like a crane, they did it on Buckingham Palace, etc. But they also went into the House of Commons and flower bombed Tony Blair. Flowers or flower? Flower, the white dust used for baking. Um, and that was around the time of anthrax scare. So that was actually yeah, probably yeah. quite a oh yeah, quite a dangerous thing to do. Well, they installed like, because there's the public gallery, which is like above the commons where you can mm. go in and watch if you're an absolute nerd. They put bulletproof glass there, I think, after that. Right, if someone could throw flour through, someone could throw a bullet through. Fathers for Justice's big achievement is uh, the further fortification of the House of Commons. Yeah, they have made the assassination <laughs> of politicians less plausible. So, so... My understanding of what they want is, like, I'm going to try and reconstruct it from mm. memory and then maybe mm -hmm. you can correct me. So there was a belief that uh, mothers were favoured in the courts when it came to custody battles. Yes. And that this was inherently sexist mm -hmm. and they missed their kids. I missed my kids. And really, I think their defining memory has been warped by Limmy's, they turn the wings against us. <laughs> When Iconic. I picture them, I just I picture that sketch instead. Yeah, she's in the wings against me. I mean, that's that's like the essence of what they gave off. Like, I get that you would want to see your children, but like the methods of their activism, like even if you agreed with the premise, they're so cringe that you would be like, nah, you shouldn't get to see your kids. <laughs> yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd say the methods of their activism betray the fact, let on the fact that the judge probably made the right call then because. <laughs> if, if, if your way of dealing with what is essentially like an interpersonal dispute mm. between your child's mother and yourself by climbing up a plinth or a balcony dressed as like the Riddler, <laughs> it's probably a sign that maybe... The Riddler! <laughs> well, it's probably a sign that maybe some of the breakdown of that relationship and some of your inability to behave responsibly regarding your own emotions would make you an unstable... Yeah. Uh, like none of them are carer. actually. Now, now you've said the Riddler. Like I don't think any of them dressed as villains. But this is this is very proto Jokerification. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were the original. Without them, the Jared Leto Joker would never have happened. The guy, the founder guy of uh, Files for Justice, legit compared the, his life situation of losing his kids to a, a personal ground zero. Oh wow! I mean, I'm sure it was quite horrible, but there's there's something quite funny about that. <laughs> That's that's a lot. I mean, losing your kids is traumatic, but mm. it feels it feels like it has the same empty sensationalism of their activism. That entire statement, <laughs> like it's not quite grounded in anything. It's just it's just quite an extreme, provocative statement. But you can't compare nine eleven to 
not having custody of a child, I think. It's a weird place to go, isn't it? But I suppose it was just central in the public consciousness in the early 2000s, so that's why. Yeah, back then we would say everything was 9-11 if we didn't like it. Like if, yeah, if the teacher wouldn't let us like go out to lunch early. You'd be like, you're (laughs) 9-11. This is my personal ground zero. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You've just flown a plane into my dairy lunchables. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Getting in the public eye is really hard. Yeah. And But what we've seen in the last few decades is groups that will do it at the complete expense of seeming appealing to anyone who now sees them due to their huge platform. <laughs> and well, this is the thing. It's like also, uh, I mean, I don't know, have a, like an elaborate knowledge of, um, you know, custody legislation or anything. But at the same time, they've expanded way beyond that to be sort of like a broad men's rights. Say like International Women's Day, Fathers for Justice will be kicking off about like, why aren't you talking about men? I see. That's the space they occupy now. Do you know what I've seen? Here's a here's a, a legacy of the Fathers for Justice. Well, I don't know whether this whole men's rights activism is Fathers for Justice and mm. how much those are two overlapping. I don't know how much those Venn diagrams overlap. I think they're a circle. Okay, but I know that, um, you know, there's been loads of things to highlight. I think Calm Campaign Against Living Miserably has done a lot of mm-hmm. adverts and billboards and bus stop signage on suicide stats to say, yeah. men, remember you have an emotion which isn't knuckles. Mm. like try and communicate with one another but because of the toxification and men's rightsification of that entire discourse i've had uh people talk about those with me in passing and go yeah have you seen like the men's rights activist stuff have started hiring out billboards and stuff because men's suicide statistics are now so ubiquitously yeah. and solely connected with uh men's rights and like anti-feminist agenda that actually wow. anti-suicide campaign groups look like they're men's rights activists for using those statistics. Wow, that's so interesting. I mean, Fathers for Justice, I, I don't think they can take credit for that wholly because it's just a lot of the sort of YouTube radicalization mm. stuff. But and Fathers for Justice are more like a sort of legacy organization. According to their website, they're one of the world's leading campaign groups. The you know, world's? World's leading. Greenpeace, Save the Children, Fathers for Justice. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they, uh, I think they probably contributed a bit to that but the, i think the interesting thing about them is like they exist in the public consciousness like if you mentioned fathers for justice people they would probably know like superheroes blah, blah, blah. but like they're kind of an example of extra parliamentary activism getting known but achieving nothing mm. in 2012 they took out a full page ad in some broadsheets it's calling for a boycott of mumsnet because loads of people on mumsnet hate them and obviously mumsnet has mm. got its own like issues with fucking transphobia and stuff like that basically its own pressure group right yeah let's focused. it's more actually definitely a forum but but like it's a pressure group you're deep into flame war and like being mega online when you're like okay we're going to claim to be one of the biggest political campaign groups in the world and then what we're going to do we're going to take a full page ad out not to further our political objective simply to what pressure mns or other advertisers to boycott Mumsnet. Well, uh, our mutual friend Charlie Sanders had a bit of stand-up about this, saying that that whole rift was like when mum and dad is fighting, but taken to a macro-national level. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. That's really good. It's a good example of a political group that failed and dissolved its concrete and clear demands into these vague, unconquerable, imprecise ongoing cultural conquests with no clear parameters where they're always the victims <laughs> which is now which is now the only frame that a political organization can operate within 
Isn't that right? Like in, in 2020, mm. no political organisation can have a concrete goal like save the, the grouse. It always has to be bring back the, the, the wonderment of what men had in the 17th century. We're going to bring back this new cultural revolution of what it means to be a villain. <laughs> the culture war. But within it, you always have to be the victim and you can never have any successes. And if you come close to a success, your leader has to like resign so that they could start a new fringe organization did you know they did have splitters yeah so yeah they had a Father's splitting five group. justice <laughs> yeah i've never the the number the use of the number four has never been explained um <laughs> they apparently once plotted to kidnap tony blair's son hello what how, how do you like it yeah i i it was the police said they knew about the plot but they discounted it because it was only they were never going to act on it but it was a regularly raised thing of like they were going to kidnap. Just an just an in joke. Yeah, yeah. And Blair's the guy to do it on because didn't Cameron like leave his children behind regularly? Probably wouldn't have noticed. But like that's worse than violence against a politician because you're you're, yeah, you're, yeah. you're victimizing a someone child. who's done a powerless, irrelevant person. But, but they're doing whole, it. Your whole platform is that we care for our children and we love our children. Also, we're going to steal a child. They also had as their slogan at one point, you know the Manic Street Preachers song, if you tolerate this, then your children will be next. Yeah. Which is so weird because it's like, Manic Street Preachers, one, they're a pretty left-wing band anyway. And B, like, if you know anything about that song beyond the title, it's about the Spanish Civil War and like Mm -hmm. uh, volunteers, like Welsh volunteers going to fight in the international brigades against Franco. Which I feel like mm. the Fathers for Justice guys give off a vibe that perhaps they would not be joining uh, socialist militias. I don't, maybe not. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> they were early doors, not radicalized, but they were early doors, like just sad older men alienated from their families, trying to have some sort of political voice, but they just sort of cocked it up and made themselves look really foolish. Yeah. Is there exactly. not a degree to I... which maybe compared to like, Tommy Robinson and, you know, sad, radicalised men that actually mm. became really dangerous. These guys maybe deserve more sympathy. I think I think they they do to the extent that, like, the child custody... There are problems with, like, child custody stuff, blah, blah, blah. But, like, they've definitely just been absorbed into that general sort of MRA nexus. Mm. And I think they might be the prototype, you know, like V1 of that... The start of that line that ends with Tommy Robinson. Yeah, and like the original sin of that whole movement is not being able to conceive of improving the conditions for men without it being a zero-sum game that attacks exactly. feminism uniquely exactly. and exclusively. Exactly. Yeah. You know, like, oh, kids need fathers. That's like a big... That's false. Well, it is false, and it's a big, like, right-wing thing that filters to their support for lots and lots of stuff. So, you know, there and there is empirical evidence that, like, you know, fatherless homes have various social problems like correlate with them. So like fatherless homes are more likely to be in poverty, but it, then it's like, okay, so a home with one fewer earner is more likely to be in poverty. Yeah, Do you see what I mean? It's not it's a like, bad thing. It's a person yeah, thing. Exactly. And they're more likely yeah. to, um, uh, you know, ch- children, fatherless kids um, or kids without fathers in the household are more likely to go in prison, whatever. But then at the same time, it's like, all right, so... It just it, like they just don't connect the dots between these things and other things. So there's loads of like sociological studies where it's like about the positive presence of a father in the home, about like 
kids growing up more confident or having better educational outcomes or being better socialized or whatever. But then it's like, it's not just that one, you're taking that one thing out of this wider social context. Mm. But there's no analysis there. They just want their kids back. That's why it's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) If we're talking guys who are a type of a guy, no one more typifies the type of a guy a guy who is a type of a guy can be than Russell Brand. First, the third selection in our celebrity category. It's called My Bookie Book. Great title, actually. And it's full of the most shocking stories of a life that has been, well, to say the least, a bit out of control. Brand is more types of a guy than you'd imagine one guy could handle being. Magical thinking talk show host. Mischievous sex man, by which I mean things I cannot repeat without fear of serious legal repercussions. And in 2014, a budding political revolutionary. You can't be asked to vote. Why should we be asked to listen to your political point of view? You don't have to listen to my political point of view, but it's not uh, that I'm not voting out of apathy. I'm not voting out of absolute indifference and weariness and exhaustion from the lies, treachery, deceit of the political class that has been going on for generations now and which has now reached fever pitch where we have a disenfranchised, disillusioned, despondent underclass that are not being represented by that political system. So voting for it is tacit complicity with that system and that's not something I'm offering up. The 2015 election was a fulcrum around which my own personal politics was slowly lowered into a pool of stagnant green water. This election was my chance to make up for being duped by Nick Clegg and his ability to remember the names of audience members in live TV debates. The Miliband campaign got under my skin in a big way. I felt incensed that I, an idiot with insomnia who lived in a cold terrace house surrounded by broken props, had to bear a Cassandra complex about the obvious upcoming electoral defeat that could not be perceived by the brightest minds of a hulking party apparatus. I knew the Miliband campaign would lose, not because of the literal bacon sandwich that Miliband ate perfectly normally, but the figurative bacon sandwich of carving out a policy platform on a monolith. I briefly tried to get active in my local Green Party, only to discover there was no apparatus in place for me to do anything useful, and being involved with my local ward just meant hanging around with an old guy, whose only grudge bigger than the local Labour councillor was using any form of technology under any circumstances. The only member that seemed to be getting on well was a white guy with dreadlocks I saw say a slur several years earlier while doing straight poetry performance at a comedy open mic night. It is against this feeling of personal political hopelessness that Russell Brand became the new face of revolutionary leftism. Now, it's a pretty foundational belief in mine that no one should be excluded from political expression, let alone leftism, because I haven't got a perfect set of beliefs, haven't read the right books, or in some way diverged from my own favoured collection of brightly coloured opinions. I'm hugely encouraging of people becoming more vocal about their experiences and perspectives, because the current status quo relies on the existence of a disaffected silent majority who are kept voiceless and coerced into maintaining a system they hate by selling their labour to survive. In general, this process of bringing people into discussion and deliberation is to the benefit of everyone. However, and that word should be read as being in bold and underlined, this is not always the case. And Brand's temporary move into politics, I believe, did genuine and long-lasting harm. So let's start right at the top. What was Brand's message exactly? 2014 political-flavoured Russell Brand's overall message was not so much unclear as it was confused. 
Brand is an articulate guy, an attribute he will emphasise with every third word, so to give him the best hearing possible I read his 2014 book Revolution, which at the time was riding a huge zeitgeist. This was the year I wanted to start finding a co-working space, so I could do emails outside of my cold, terraced house, and I remember seeing Revolution on the bookshelf everywhere I went, tucked between the repurposed pallets and the cucumber water. Eventually, someone on Twitter said I could work with him, and I spent the afternoon in a bookless office the size of a shipping container with a man who spoke to me about brand marketing as I spent hours watching the flashing cursor of a half-composed email. In 2020, I'm pleased to announce that Russell Brand's book is actually more garbled than my six-year-old prejudices suspected. Russell Brand's revolution is a personal spiritual revolution whereby yogic meditation can help you overcome drug addiction. That's something that just keeps coming up in the book, so I'll mention it here. I've got nothing critical to say about people using yoga and meditation to overcome addiction, but the way Brand yields it well, leaves this troubling aura. It's not enough for him to be religious or spiritual. It has to be exoticized. He fetishizes shamanism and describes himself fawning over a Tibetan monk he met in an airport because the guy's wearing what he describes as curtains. In one really uncomfortable chapter, he gatecrashes a black Christian ceremony, nicknames the character's presence based on black celebrities, and describes their private worship practices he's just gatecrashed as animalistic. In terms of politics with a huge P and a barely perceptible politics, Brand says he also wants a genuine political revolution like the Spanish Civil War. Except this one's going to be non-violent. He wants an anarcho-collectivist horizontal power structure, but after which there will still be a mayor of London who solves problems created by capitalism using popular policy platforms? It's kind of all over the place, pushing intermittently in one direction and then just as hard in another, content to overlap and contradict. That lack of clarity is really troubling when talking about hugely important issues. So keen is he to justify and overcome the negative perception created by the Paxman interview, Brand is foregoing the necessary intellectual humility of such a gargantuan task with a dog in relentless insistence that he has done the research and thought about things and therefore can be taken seriously. As such, the book is showered with extraneous quotations. Winston Churchill, Che Guevara, Wittgenstein, all side by side condensed into a buffet of Hallmark card proverbs, each an emblem of wide reading. Now, even at the best of times, it is hard to instill the right degree of open-mindedness. No one wants to be a lockdown fortress brain or a nude mind overwriting contradictory information with the last thing you've been told. When I went to university, I encountered a particular type of clever person for the first time. Someone who hears something, remembers it, and then just says the thing they've heard again when it feels relevant. And I understand where these behaviours come from. Institutionally, this behaviour is rewarded well into our adulthood. Analysis and criticism are kept up on the high shelf, as well it should be. Otherwise, we'd all be like Jeremy Corbyn walking around Vienna Centre, pointing at architecture and saying, that's capitalist. I had a friend who was so bad for regurgitating anything they'd hear, we'd play a game where we'd feed them insane trivia and see if we can prime them to repeat it in front of new people who'd furrow their brow and say, that's, that's wrong. The, what, the, what you've said is absolutely bonkers. Once we got them to say that there's no electricity in Scotland in front of a stranger, it doesn't matter. Information is just something you hold in your cheeks until you're ready to spit it back out. It's personally, it's funny. Politically, it's a bit of a mess, and it can be quite dangerous. Brand's book feels like someone's trawled the seabeds for random bits of litter and is now showing them off like a rockery. Mobile phones are secretly dangerous. Paying taxes is bad because you're making the Tories personally rich. ADHD and OCD and other psychological diagnoses are an invented scam. Science has become the new oppressive religion of our time. All these statements and more are just dropped in with no justification or follow-up. This is a book about starting a revolution that contains apologia for the police and the Westboro Baptist Church. 
But some of Brand's most troubling behaviour comes outside of the book itself, because his launch event had to be cancelled because he invited a Nazi to speak at it. The son of a Corrie actor, and one of those anti-big banks guys, and by big banks I mean the global Zionist conspiracy type of guys. Dig a little deeper, and you can find him discussing the finer points of Nazi Party 25 point programme on the Facebook group for the Greek neo-Nazis The Golden Dawn. These are the dangers of having a wide open mind because there are entryists using distrust of the elite capitalists to drive a fascistic and anti-Semitic wedge to occupy important cultural ground on the left. Scanning Brand's book with this in mind and suddenly certain references to secretive elite organisations that control global politics who are polluting the environment for a few extra shekels starts to ring a lot of alarm bells. Now you take everything that is problematised about this and combine them with a huge platform. And Brand's platform was huge for two reasons. His pre-existing fame, which in turn was a pretext for media organisations to platform him and use his specific sheer defeatability in debate to destroy the only spokesperson for the radical left. As a common practice used to discredit grassroots or fringe social movements, whereby a reporter can find the least articulate person in a group, interviews them exclusively, transforming a rando into a spokesperson for the whole group, and their unconvincing roadside responses into the public slogans for a complex and multifaceted project. For this reason, Brand was a perfectly useful idiot for the case against revolutionary action. There is no shortage of people who can argue these topics with absolute clarity and determination, but they will never end up on Channel 4 News. Brand was all the left had, and so we ended up in an absurd situation where you can find anarchists, Marxists, socialists, communists, they're all trying to prop up this media figure because they are the only chance anyone's going to get to portray the most basic tenets of these ideas in the mainstream. And so of course it fails. It was designed to fail. Anarchism, revolutionary leftism, radical political change are once again dismissed as teenage ramblings dribbling from the chops of a guy cosplaying as a 17th century rake. Brand eventually bottles it big time. He provides an endorsement for Ed Miliband and even does a little interview with him in his kitchen for his YouTube show, The Trues. It's a fascinating interview in that they just sit in Brand's kitchen and say, hell yes, I'm tuss enough for each other for 15 minutes straight. Brand is constantly trying to get Miliband to take any kind of encouraging or radical position and Ed goes, no, I'm not going to do that. And Brand goes, sounds great, you got my vote. Could we see bankers going to prison for like some of the uh, uh, rate rigging, the Libor scandal? Yeah, of course, if there's fraud committed by bankers, it's evident that there of was. Of course, if there's fraud committed by, uh, but we need banks that are going to work for businesses. I mean, banks are a good thing. Uh, Amazon paid 0.05% yeah, on deal with four that. billion sales. Yeah, we got. Do deal we with have that. the power yeah, to do that? Of course, you do. How? Well, first of all, you got to do it internationally. Yeah. Because these companies are mobile around the world. And that is hard yards, but you've got to do it. And secondly, you've got to be willing to act on your own way you can. Look, there are different countries that have different ways of dealing with these things. Some are more successful than others. I'm not looking for euphoria, right? I know that sounds a bit weird. Obviously, you know, I want to get rid of the Tory government. First of all, you don't want politicians saying, vote for me and on day one, the world is transformed. It ain't going to be like that. So there we are. I think we learned a lot about Labour. We learned a lot about Ed Miliband. It's not a perfect interview. Labour loses the election in a protracted scene of tedious inevitability, and Brand drowns his sorrows by acting in an animated feature about troll dolls with Zoe Deschanel. And what about the people he inspired? What about those actually impassioned by his existence outcry and invective? Russell Brand's YouTube channel, The Trues, quickly pivots its output to episodes such as Is Monogamy Best? How to Combat Shyness? Who's in Charge of Emma Watson's Tits? There's no more talk of anarchism or revolution. Politics, when present, becomes more journalistic, headline-focused. 
Brand has brought a generation of disaffected young people to YouTube to get their ideologies from a new brand of independent content creators, where the algorithm can serve them up all the political commentary they need. Stephen Molyneux, Infowars, Stephen Crowder, Milo Yiannopoulos. My guest on Under the Skin today is Dr. Jordan Peterson. I know plenty of people whose first taste of politics was Russell Brand. They went full YouTube and they are now full QAnon guys. And that is one of the worst type of a guy you can be. Invigorated by anti-establishment sentiment with no clear guidance and ushered onto the most dangerous radicalizing platform on the internet, Brand functioned as a gateway drug for the UK alt-right. And that's the connecting tissue between Brand and Fathers for Justice. Two campaigns built out of backlash, responding to a feeling of powerlessness, who became fertile ground for a more pernicious cultural reactionary force. Now, there are criticisms of the left that by being too much of a puritanical closed shop, it loses these grassroots movements to bad faith right-wing agitators, as though the left would be in a better position if it had let in the quest for higher consciousness via yogic meditation, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, and reactionary anti-feminism. And that's still just talking about Russell Brand. Useful politics where anything remotely good happens has been put on ice my entire lifetime, and all debate has been squeezed to the fringes in a battle royale of competing cultural argy-bargy that commentators refer to as Helltown USA. And in that environment, when you become completely divorced from any clear material demands, even well-meaning campaigns can struggle to tread water without being pulled into the depths by an army of briny grey arms. Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean, with additional music from Jack Evans and Andrew Chrislett's performance of Antonin Dvorak's biblical songs, Opus 99. Next episode, we'll be answering listener questions, that's you, you are them, uh, which you can post on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash mandatory redistribution party. Thank you very much for listening and for supporting the podcast. <laughs>